you I lift up my eyes, O dweller in the heavens. Look like the eyes of slaves to their masters, like the eyes of a slave girl to her mistress. So are our eyes to the Lord our God, until he grants us grace. Grant us grace, Lord, grant us grace, for we are sorely sated with scorn. Sorely has our being been sated with the contempt of the smug and the scorn of the haughty. Amen. Thank you, Lisa. Lisa was reading from a translation by Robert, Robert Adler, who's a Jewish scholar. Uh, and his translation of the Psalms um, is, is quite vibrant in some ways. We've been trying to read from different ones each week. We always try to read from the one that by default we have in the back, which is the NIV, which is uh, a good, solid translation. Um, and then I try to pick one that sort of brings the, uh, the word of the Psalm out in a different way, whether it be the message or the NLT or this one today from, from Robert Adler. It brings different meaning out if you have time to sort of listen to them. If you ever hear one and you're like, I'd love to hear that again, we can print it off and get it out after the service. But if you're wondering why I'm talking about translations, this is a quick plug. Hampton's Bible study this morning, you can raise a hand, Hampton, I hope everybody knows who you are, but, um, was this great time of sort of learning about the history of translation, how it came to us, um, how the best translation is the NIV in Hampton's word, and there is none other that can compare. No, um, we're not actually discerning which is the best, but we're going through how translations work, what are the things that led to the history of the scriptures coming together, and how we ended up even with the Greek and Hebrew man the manuscript we use for translations today. So if you're interested, it's before the service at uh, 9, um, and we've got four left, four left. So. Uh, go there and enjoy the time because it is filling and it is full. But this is our um, third and twentieth and one more thing to do. Fourth Sunday in the Psalms of Ascent. Um, this is we we reached one twenty three and this phrase, the one that begins this one, is similar to us. It's I will lift my eyes to the heavens. And so we've been talking about these Psalms of Ascent. As sort of the ways in which we sort of go and move to the place that God has for us. And so for the ancient Israelite pilgrims, this came in the form of taking their three times a year sort of required pilgrimages up to Jerusalem, which seems to be the origin of these psalms and the ways in which they came together. But for us, it's the ways, and we talked about last week um, from St. Augustine, the idea of it's that our loves that are being purged, is that we uh, love, uh, for St. Augustine, we're always lovers, and we can love rightly, or we can love things in their disorder. And he talks about these Psalms of Ascent, that of learning to love rightly as we're brought into the presence of God, that we're sort of brought into that place. And this week, um, the psalm begins with another phrase that I think can help us sort of figure out why as Christians we read these. But the first is um, this quote from Nietzsche, which I said came from... Uh, which does come from Eugene Peterson's uh, commentary on these psalms, which is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And when I think about the Finance Church and the work that we have this week as I was walking and praying and thinking, this phrase kept coming back to me because I think this is, is what we have at the moment in the work and the adventure that we have before us as a church, and so it fits these psalms of ascent too. And, and what Nietzsche, and if you know Nietzsche, it's great that 
Eugene Peterson stole this line for him for a Christian commentary. Uh, Nietzsche, one of the most famous atheists of the 1800s, like very, very famous atheist. Uh, but he said the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same by direction. There, thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. That for us as a people of God's promise, as a people of the word, as a people even journeying in the Psalms in this way, it's to be a people of a long obedience in the same direction. We are going towards, uh, what did the first song say today? We're marching to Zion, we're marching to Zion, the glorious, glorious Zion. There are people going to the holy city of God. There are being people invited by Jesus Christ to make our residency there and to live that in the world. Uh, Clark had mentioned that the fruits of that even begin to show up in our lives now as we are these people that are making something in this long obedience in the same direction. As I mentioned, this is our fourth Sunday, but the first Sunday, I think that Peterson helped sort of name this and other commentators do is that the, they have a movement so far, these Psalms of Ascent. 120 started with this person in the world of sort of lies and deceit. And so they make the decision in that world of lies and deceit to turn and to go back to the city, to go take their pilgrimage and go to this place. And, and the phrase that we sort of used for that Sunday was this repentance and how this repentance in, in the biblical world isn't an emotion, do you feel bad about that necessarily, but it's a movement, it's a way of turning around. And the Greek word for repentance, which I say often is metanoia, which would mean more like making a U-turn in the world. It's not just um, feeling bad, it's changing the direction of your life. So 120 starts with that. 121 is this one we talked about as if it were a phrase of setting out. I look to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And the second voice in that one says, our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It's the sort of way of going out. The 122 that we talked about last week is very centered in Jerusalem. It's almost like um, most people think the psalmist has arrived or is near the gates, and he's praising the city as a place of joy and a place of peace. That this is sort of the pattern of this psalms already. You can get the feel that they have this ascent notion to them. But this psalm begins with the same phrase that 121 did. I lift my eyes up. I lift my eyes, and then this one says to you rather than to the mountains. What I wanted to do, this is uh, my classic drawing of the week. Um, it's a guy looking to the mountains. Um, I love that I have to explain these because it makes it even better. Um, uh, and what I was wanted to think about is that what we look to does a lot for us. So going back to Augustine's idea that our loves are sort of how we order our lives, I think in the modern world it might be helpful to, to say visions are how, or where our vision is is how we order our lives. What we look to is how we order our lives. So one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so hard on uh, smartphones and advertisements in my sermons often is because they attempt to retrain our vision. They attempt to have us set our eyes on other things. And, and part of the thing that as we sort of live in this world, even if we're looking up um, healthy options, whether it be food or doctors or dentists and this and that, is we begin to set our trust in our eyes on mountains or on things. And the belief that these might be stable and provide for us. 
Now, if you're a social media user, uh, Instagram or any of those things, and Twitter too, and Facebook, actually all of them, there's no one exempt on this, is they tend to retrain your eyes, and whether it be, we talked about, and that's all, that how political season is coming, and that's a big time where everybody, both parties, doesn't matter who, third parties, want to say that feast your eyes here, because this is where things will get better. This is where stability will rely for the world. Well, there might, there is, or there might be, depending on your perspective, room for, for that type of movement. What the psalmist really knows and proclaims to us is that those things will ultimately fail. <clears throat> They'll be found as mountains, as big piles of rocks. And not only that, in this world, to look to the mountains was to look to religious sites. Most of the other ancient Near East religious sites were up on mountains. I look to the other gods for help. And it's long been my argument that, that we have other gods in our world um, that want to claim allegiances, that want to become idols for us, um, and we don't see them as like gods with arms and legs and stuff like that as the ancient world do, but they still have the same power in the way that the New Testament says that their principalities and powers are out there. And so we have this way in which our eyes are always trained up to things. And these can lead to distortions in our own lives can cause us to pursue things that are temporary. The phrase last week that uh, came from Augustine's commentary on the Psalms was that we love what is created rather than the one who created them. And I suggested that if we love the one who created them, it helps us love the created things in their proper place, without trying to control or manipulate them, but to allow them to be free in what they are. And so when we look to these things, it becomes an idolatry for us. It becomes something that can pull us away. And this is why this psalm begins with, I lift my eyes not to the mountains, but to you who sits enthroned in heaven. Now this one's great. This guy sitting on the throne. He's glowing, because that's the best I could do for the beatific vision of God's life with us. I should have looked up something from the Byzantine century or something. They do a much better job at this, but... But this is my attempt to say that this one looks to a God who's enthroned in heaven. The one who resides in heaven in this place. That the vision that we want for our lives is similar to what this psalm says. Is to say, to look, I look to the one who is enthroned. My eyes are set to that place. And if when our eyes are registered to that place, things begin to properly align, I think is what we want to say. Is that we begin to live in a different way. We begin to see things in their proper sense. This is what happens when our eyes are set on what is right. It calls us and lifts us up rather than pulls us down. And it's not, uh, my grandpa used to tell us, he had um, some sort of early Alzheimer's, but he would tell us the same thing all the time. But one of them was my Uncle Tommy had been looking at uh, what I would assume was a pretty woman, he didn't say that, but a woman walking on the street, and he drove his car into, I think, a fire hydrant. And his lesson for us was, what you look at, particularly when you're driving, but ever else, is where you're gonna go. Um, and so he was looking off to the side, um, and that pulled him in the direction of a fire hydrant. And I think this is true for our vision in our lives as well, um, that these things pull us in that direction. We think, Oh, I can just look for a second, but they begin to have a pull over you. It's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount who, who proclaims that the, lie, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, 
your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your body will be full of darkness. If not, then the light within you is darkness. How great is the darkness? That these ways of, of training our eyes and looking in the world can set us to darkness instead of light, which I think is part of the challenge of this psalm and of this morning. And one of the things when you study poetry, did anybody study poetry a little bit, like really study it? Yeah. Some. Uh, and then, and Daddy, you're pretty good with Shakespeare. Did you ever get into the sonnets or no? Yes. Yes, so you understand the structure. But like, when you look at poems, and this is what you're always tempted to do with the Psalms, which I've resisted until today uh, to some degree, is that the structure helps give it meaning. So it's not just like these things exist just as words on a page, but they have this way in which the movement of them and the structure of them creates meaning too. It's not just like the words are all the meaning, but there's a structure too. And this psalm, I think, has an amazing structure. Even as um, Lisa read it and Park read it this morning, again, I was drawn into all the time I spent thinking about it this week on how the structure of it is really meaningful. First is that it begins with this I. I lift my eyes. But then the secondary calls, what the psalmist is asking for, has this us language to it. It goes from the singular to the plural. And I think that's so meaningful for us as we undertake these pilgrimages ourselves. The psalmist of Psalm 120 sets out in some ways by himself. He's had enough of the lies and deceit that surround him in the world. But as we move, and this is a, it was a joke about leadership that a guy who was leading without a, uh, uh, any followers is just a guy taking a walk. Um, you know, you're not leading that. You're just out on a walk by yourself. Um, and there's this idea in which as we're drawn into this movement with God, it's not a singular quest. We have other people along the way with us. Last week it was the people who said, come, let us go to the house of the Lord, and I rejoice. There's people on this road with us. There's a temptation, I think, in, in partially the modern world, but partially always, to think of the, the spiritual life as a solitary quest. And that may be true of some Eastern religions, and certainly true of the religions of self-help today. Um, it's not true of the biblical religion of Judaism and Christianity. That those call us into a people that God is making in the world. So this person, as they start with an I lift my eyes to you, and you'll notice we'll get to the eyes here thing in a second. I lift my eyes to you. It actually moves towards us. There's more of us on this journey. And the more of us are asking for grace and mercy when we get there. But the second thing in the structure I didn't, I, I didn't, I forgot to put the slide in for the second thing. Um, is eyes, 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 eyes. Eyes occurs four times in these first two verses. I look at my eyes, and I'll, I'll the slide will help, but if you imagine it, I lift my eyes to you as the eyes of the slaves, as eyes of slaves look to their master, as eyes of a female slave look to the hand of their mistress. And here's the final line, which is this building that builds from the, the general, I look to you, and it ends with, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God. Lord being, and you, you're waiting for it in many of the Psalms, 
Where is God's personal name going to show up? I lift my eyes to you is, is sort of the vague, I lift my eyes to you. But when it gets to the end after it's eyes as eyes as eyes, so we look to the Lord our God. It moves in a way towards its pinnacle. And, and this one, I did remember, uh, there's a simile nature to it. It's, it goes as, as. I lift my eyes to you as a master, as a slave looks to his master, as a mistress looks, or as a maiden looks to her mistress, is one way of translating that second part. It's got these two as statements, which is amazing because that first one, I look to you enthroned in heaven, is this kind of distant thing. This God is one who lives in heavens, I think is what the translation that Lisa read was. This one who is far away. But one of the things that's always amazing and great about the God who comes to us in um, the Lord, uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament, and Jesus Christ, um, is they become these metaphors or similes for us, these comparison things. As something, as something. This is not a God who just resides far away and never comes near, but is one that's so near you can use one of the base analogies of the ancient world. As a slave looks to his master, as a mistress looks to her maiden, which here, it's, a, it's an inclusive soul. That's <laughs> uh, male and female right there, um, which is not always the case in scripture. Not unique either, but but this, this psalm particularly uses both male and female languages right there, as, as, inclusive, everyone that has his way, in which we look to God as this one who has power and is great, this one who is the master of us. One of the things that this brought me to, which we talked a lot about when we went through the book of Genesis, was the lost art of being a creature. Or, and, and if you want to look at the quote on the back of the bulletin, I think it nails this theme to some degrees too, is that too often we think of religion as a far off, mysterious, really run bureaucracy to which we apply for assistance when we feel the need. We go to our local branch office and direct the clerk, sometimes called a pastor, me, uh, to fill our order for God. Then we go home and wait for God to be delivered to us according to the specifications we have set down. But as that, but that is not the way it works. If we thought about it for two consecutive minutes, we would not want it to work that way. If God is God at all, he must know more about our needs than we do. If God is God at all, he must be more in touch with the reality of our thoughts, our emotions, and our bodies than we are. If God is God at all, he must have a more comprehensive grasp of the interrelations in our families, in our communities, in our nations than we do. There's this old joke that, that God made man in his image and we returned to favor, uh, making God in our image, is that this notion of a God who is great, who is like uh, a master to a slave, is often one that we push back on. It's not one that is close to us. I like a God who is a little bit more either like a teddy bear or like this, where it's like I just punched the thing in and what comes out is what I needed to come out. But this metaphor here calls out this God who is far beyond in some ways, this one who can direct with his hand. And this is what the psalmist says, is that, so our eyes look to your hand till he shows mercy on us, or to the eye, eye, the hand of their master or the hand of their mistress is what the psalmist's eyes are on. 
This is one outside of them who has power. And so this lost art of being a creature, I think, is, is something that we as a church can reclaim in our humanity. And in our humanity, this means in relation to the God who is the creator. Is one who is beyond us in these ways. So much of what we can do or can try to do is to make um, the world bend to our reality and our needs. But there's something about being a creature of a good God that's different than that. It sets us in a different place. It's long been my joke that it would be weird if Park got up and greeted us and said, Look at all these lovely creatures here today to worship the God who made them. And yet that is our truth in some ways, too. Our breath is not our own, but it's breathed into us by God, and we are created from dust. And so when we have this God and this metaphor here, this as, as, so, as slaves look to the hand of their master, the female slaves look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to God he shows mercy. Now this was hard this week. I didn't make this. Um, but this says, till he shows mercy. Now I have a, a six-volume Bible dictionary, and so I was like, well, I should look up mercy and find out the word that makes up mercy. Um, and when I look to mercy, this word, um, oh, man, Hampton, can you translate it? Tanan. Tanan, that's, yeah. Kanan, uh, this word, um, didn't appear there at all. And I was like, well, that's horrible. Like, I just got this thing. It's in digital format. I was like, why can I not find it? And so I gave up, and then I, I don't give up very easy. And so, like, two days later, I was like, that is so annoying. If this thing is six volumes, and this word occurs 200 times in the Old Testament, how does it not have an entry that refers to it? And what I actually found is that in this um resource, this is filed under grace, not mercy. And one of the things that's hard about this psalm is what we read into it is, is, is very difficult, because if it is mercy, and you can see, so if you want to look at this, this, I'll explain this circle graph, is that of the 200 times it occurs, these are all the ways it's translated, I believe, in the NIV. Um, and so, the most being have mercy, the next is mercy, be gracious, pleaded, gracious, be merciful, um, that these are the ways generous. But it's, it makes a huge difference, and it's not hard to think about this, if the psalmist is asking for grace or is asking for mercy. Because if the psalmist is asking for God to be merciful, and that the metaphor we have is one of the slaves to his master, it's almost as if that's not, um, well, first it sets up that this is a psalm of confession, which it doesn't seem like it is. It's a pilgrim psalm in a different way. There is a psalm of confession in um, the Psalms of Ascent, but this one doesn't seem as if it's structured that way. What the psalmist, in, in this, when you break out this word even more, uh, well, as you can see, what it literally means is unmerited favor almost. It means favor would be the most literal translation. Most Christians, when we think of favor, we think of grace. When we think of mercy, we think of Psalm 51, have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love. Then we have Psalms of confession, but what this one seems to be asking for is that this master is good. 
This master is one who is worth being near. The look that the psalmist gives to this master is one of gladness, of one of awe, of one of dependence, and one of trust. This is quite different than if it's um, one of mercy, right? Mercy would be more of like, please hold up, um, which it certainly has a way in the biblical religion, but this psalmist is talking about this way in which God will have grace to him. And so after our eyes look to the Lord till he shows us mercy or grace, the psalmist continues with this phrase, have grace on us, Lord, have grace on us. The twice petition there, all with the same word. That God is being asked to grace on these people. What the psalmist asks for an end to is contempt. <coughs> this is a where it gets hard because I don't think we, as modern Christians, um, perhaps feel contempt in the way that the psalmist does. That we not saying that. Uh, we look um, to God because of the problems and the struggles we have in our lives. Because things aren't as they should be in our bodies and our families and in our relationships and such. And that is good and true to look God in that way. But what these pilgrims are saying is what they've endured in the world is the word they use for it is contempt. They've had contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. It ends with this sort of phrasing around what they've endured as they've been on this path. Now, I'm sure many of us um, have had times like this. It, it seems often, unfortunately, that these times show up in college, although I'm guessing it gets younger. It is hopefully, hopefully growing, not growing, hopefully. It's, you don't want it, but you seems important too, is that when you set out on the path of being a Christian, when you set out in changing your life direction, when you've had enough of the lies as the psalmist of the ascent began in 120, people will try to talk you out of it. There will be contempt in looking down. They will think you're not being rational, that you're making errors, that this is not the way it works. It's often been my, my contention that, that when Jesus says that you need to hate your family to inherit the kingdom of God, which is the hardest teaching, I think what he means is that, look, if you are a young person um, with parents who care about you and love you, and you say, you know what, I'm going to drop out of college and become a missionary, um, work in cities, uh, give my life to the soup kitchen, uh, join a monastery, uh, do something crazy for Jesus— the people who want to talk you out of that first and most likely will be your parents, uh, Christian or not, and I think that's just a good parental urge, but it is a challenge. Um, and so it's not, it's almost something that's close to us as well. The contempt we have as we set out to go to this place, as we lift our eyes, and our eyes look to this God, and we look to this God in a way that this God directs us, is a way that calls for contempt in the world. And J. Clinton McCann, uh, one of my favorite commentators on the psalm, says that North American Christians in particular may have never experienced this persecution or contempt on account of their faith. If this is the case, it is because we have not faithfully proclaimed and embodied the radical good news that God so loves the world and intends it 
to be rightly ordered so that all may know life and peace. I think that that's a powerful phrase, that, that we have not committed with the world in a way that says God loves it as such and intends it. This is, if you just cut off that God loves the world, um, hard, people don't get that upset at that, but intends for it to be rightly ordered so that all may know life and peace. As if this God is the creator who knows what's best for us. As if he is one like a master to us that we look to his hand. This is what this psalmist proclaims. This is the contempt that he's dealt with. And he continues as precisely because he proclaimed in the body the good news that Jesus ended up on a cross and called people to follow him. It is this truth that Christ is one who bears contempt. I think it's important for us to, whenever we read the Psalms, to realize that Christ is the one who prays these Psalms first. This one doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to get to. He is one who lifts his eyes to the Father. He is one who knows the ways of God. And the words of Philippians become a bondservant here on earth. He looks to the God for mercy and grace, but he's the one who endured contempt for our sake and for our salvation. And fortunately or unfortunately, he calls us to endure the same. That the church, that the people of him in the world can expect to not do much better. But instead of ending on a bad note, because that would be bad preaching, um, um, <laughs> There's a way, I think, and this is, this is sort of the final truth, I think, of this psalm and this lesson. Is there a way in which you know this God? You set your eyes four times. As, as, as. You know grace and mercy. You know what the contempt is that is around you. But I think what we find, and this is a phrase I've come to love, and I can't remember where I first heard it, was that the people who can set their eyes in this way and see God in this way have a way of being fierce with reality because they, in some sense, are the most free. We live in a world that talks about freedom a lot, um, and I think it was Peterson this week who, who said, I know that's a lie because we're a nation of addicts and complainers, which I was like, it's nice to be a retired pastor to speak like that. Um, so I just quote pastors who say that, so I don't have to deal with it. Um, we're a nation of addicts and complainers. Freedom is not what we have. But to be able to set your eyes on the master, on the mistress, as a slave of the one who created and knows all things, who in that phrase we looked at earlier is nearer to us than we are to ourselves, who is more intimately involved in the world of our nations and our families and our bodies than we can even do so ourselves, is to finally be free, I think. Because your eyes aren't set on the other thing things which drag us down. It was a Luther or Calvin, I forget, that said, you know, that idolatry is sort of everywhere, and any idol worth its salt requires human sacrifice. The idols that we can lift our eyes to will require human sacrifice, whether it be a change in your appearance, change in how you order your day and in your life, how you spend your money, how you can sort of turn inward on yourself. 
how life becomes a continual self-improvement project. Um, that these things become these things that eat us up in a way that you would call, or Luther would say, these idols demand human sacrifice. But this psalmist, in this one, that proclaims for us, that when we lift our eyes to the one seated in his throne, we lift our eyes to our Lord, our God, I think we find that we are truly freed from that place. And that which seems to have a claim on all the realities of the world actually fails has no power, it is not the power of the one we look and turn towards. And it ultimately is a lie to be exposed. So maybe we too can endure contempt, endure it to no end, of ridicule from the arrogant to the proud. Because in this place we find that we are free, um, and that God has brought us to a better place. There was a what is the line I'm thinking of from Lord, I need you? And here we are. Where you are, Lord, I am free. Um, but that's where we find freedom, to move into that place. So let's close with praying this psalm, which I'll pray for us, and then have a short time of prayer. I lift my eyes to you. To you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave looks to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he shows us his mercy and grace. Have mercy and grace on us, Lord. Have mercy and grace on us. For we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. God, be with us as your pilgrim people, your people who look to you enthroned. Call us to set our eyes towards you, so that in a world full of false promises and lies, to drag our vision and our eyes and our souls and our loves down into sin and darkness. That we can become those who are free, free to endure the contempt of those who find this path to be ludicrous, to be costly, to be insane, but to finally find ourselves in the freedom exhibited by your Son so that we can be true in the world ways in which you have called us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.